can go ahead and take your Bibles and open them up to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. As you're kind of getting yourself situated in the book of Ephesians there, um, I, I wonder if you've been a little bit like me, if you've had the uh, unique privilege of walking into an exam or a test. Maybe you can think back to your high school days or your college or university days, and you can remember that time where you walked in so confident. You knew your stuff. You had the textbook, you had the syllabus, and you were ready to devour that exam only to sit down and find out that you knew nothing. And to walk out utterly defeated and deflated, wondering what in the world had happened. I've looked at pages on exams and literally thought, this is not a part of this class. (laughs) I have no idea what they're asking me. You see, in the Christian life, though, we often settle for a kind of superficial knowledge of God that doesn't really change much in our lives. It doesn't really change how we think and how we speak or how we live. But God calls us into a true and life-changing knowledge of him that affects every corner of our lives. In the test, so to speak, of the Christian life, God is not content that we hold the textbook or that we have the syllabus. He longs for us to truly know what we have in front of us in a deep way, a way that truly changes us from the inside out. So the question for us this morning is very simple. How do I know that I know him? How do I know really that I know him? Paul's prayer that he launches into now in the book of Ephesians, beginning in verse 15, answers this question for us. Paul has just unleashed a heart filled with praise in the longest run-on sentence in all of Scripture, verses 3 all the way through 14, this unashamedly uh, just devout expression of praise and adoration for God, and now he turns after he blesses God for how God has so richly blessed us in Christ. He turns now and he focuses specifically on the church in Ephesus and the the believers who had received this letter, and he wants to pray something very specific for them. He wants to pray that they would truly know God. Paul begins in verse 15. Look at what he says. He says, for this reason... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. Paul longs for us to know him, to know God, to know God the Father in a deep and meaningful way, and as he launches into this prayer, you can just make note there, in the first couple of verses, he tells us why he's launching into this prayer. He has heard some things about the saints in Ephesus, and he longs to express this to them, and I think what he expresses to them is incredibly helpful for us, and as you kind of look at what Paul says about them, I want you to see it like this. You see, knowing God changes what I'm known for. Knowing God changes what I'm known for, what I'm identified by, what characterizes my life. 
the things that shape me most are made more evident as I come into a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ. As Paul writes, he reflects upon the defining characteristics of genuine followers of Christ. Not exhaustively, that's for sure, but certainly of those things which are of first importance, those things which should be supremely evident in the life of a follower of Christ. So as we look at these, I want to just simply use this as a framework or a paradigm to examine our own lives. I want to ask you to use these four attributes that I'm going to pull out from the text and hold them up to your life and see how your life stacks up. These are identifying features of a Christian So first, am I known for my unashamedly visible faith? Am I known for my unashamedly visible faith? Verse 15, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith. This is four years after Paul had been in the city of Ephesus and helped to launch the church there. He writes now under his first imprisonment, and one of the things he takes great delight and encouragement in is that he has heard of the faith of the believers in this church in Ephesus and all the surrounding areas. This is speaking of your expressed and exclusive trust in Jesus. That's what is meant by faith here. It's seen in what you say and how you live. You see, these believers here were unashamed of being identified of, as followers of Christ In the first century, it was certainly not easy to be a follower of Christ. It would have been very easy to hide your faith. The costs socially, economically, familially would be immense for so many in this day and age. And yet they are here expressing this unashamed faith. It is visible, it is identifiable, it is something that is made evident by what they say and how they live. They had come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that is who their faith is in. It is in the Lord Jesus Christ. They were unashamed of the reality that Jesus Christ was not only the Savior of the world, they believed that truth, they believed the content of the gospel, they believed that Jesus had come to the earth, that he had died for sins, that he had been raised from the grave, that he reigned supreme and victorious. But I want you to notice this, that word Lord there is so significant. They were unashamed to say that Jesus Christ was their Lord. That is not simply pointing to the idea of deity, though it certainly has ties to that. This is pointing more to the reality that Jesus Christ was their master. They had bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. They no longer lived for themselves. They no longer lived to define themselves by who they were and their own autonomy. They lived to be defined by their service to their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is so crucial for being a follower of Christ. There is no one who can be a follower of Christ who does not bow the knee to him as Lord. That happens the moment of salvation where we confess that we are no longer in control, that he must be Lord of our lives, that he must reign supreme. But can I just suggest to you, we have this sometimes faulty notion in our minds that the Lordship of Christ begins and ends at salvation. And if you're anything like me, you realize that Christ being Lord of your life is a daily pursuit, isn't it? It's a constant battle in our hearts to make sure that Jesus Christ is truly ruling, that he is seated on the throne of our hearts. It's a battle we face, we're constantly being torn by our flesh, pulled back to wanting to be the ones who are Lord and Master. But our lives as we progress in the Christian life need to be unashamedly visible in our faith. 
True faith cannot exist apart from true love, by the way. We cannot love the Lord Jesus. It's impossible to say that we love the Lord Jesus Christ without loving those whom he loves. And that's what Paul says next. He identifies these believers. And let me ask you, does this characterize who you are? Am I known for my selflessly sacrificial love? Paul ties this idea of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to deep expressions of love towards others. And I think this is a really crucial point for us to understand. It's impossible to say that Jesus is my Lord, Jesus is my Savior, I love Jesus, and I'm so thankful for what he's done for me, and then to not have visible, manifest expressions of that love towards those whom God loves through Christ. We live in a culture today of individual autonomy and self-love. As I just mentioned, we wrestle with this battle in our hearts every single day which is why this is actually one of the most obvious marks of a genuine follower of Christ. And the scriptures are, are replete with this. God wants to make it very, very clear that genuine believers can be seen by their love towards others. Notice what Paul says here. He says this, your love towards all the saints. Now, if you like to circle little words that maybe you've kind of skipped over before, the, the word you might want to circle there is all. All, because that's the word we struggle with when it comes to love, isn't it? We can, we can look around this room and say, you know, I love for sure some of these people, <laughs> but all of them? I mean, how can I love somebody who's so different from me, whose personality kind of, you know, goes against the grain of my personality? I mean, that person rubs me the wrong way. There's no way you can expect me to love them. I just want you to notice that one of the things that Paul celebrates and he points out is one of the identifying markers of a genuine follower of Christ is that they love all the saints. Christian love is indiscriminate. It does not pick and choose which believers it will love. Christ, listen to this, Christ loves all believers and they are precious to him. He has purchased them by his own blood. And by definition, therefore, Christian love extends to all Christians. I need you to hear this and I need to hear this too. To the extent that it does not, it is less than Christian. To the extent to which it is not a love that is indiscriminate, it is less than Christian. It is less than godlike love, is it not? This is the kind of love that Paul celebrates here. I want to highlight this through some other scriptures. I want you just to hear for a second. 1 John 3.14, let me just read it to you. It says this, we know that we have passed out of death into life. That's a phrase uh, in regards to our own salvation. Here's why. Because we love the brothers, and whoever does not love abides in death. It is most potently and practically reflecting the gospel, this kind of love. Listen to what Jesus says in John 13, verse 34. He says this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. This is given in the context of Jesus. Remember, kneeling down, stooping, this is the God of all creation, and he washes his disciples' feet. Their filthy, dirty feet, a task that was reserved for the lowest of the low slaves. A Jewish slave was not even allowed to do this task. And here is Jesus, the king of the universe, getting on his knees, wrapping a towel around his waist, having a basin of, of water, scrubbing the feet of his disciples in an act of sacrificial, selfless love to show his disciples, you see what I've done for you? Do you see the lengths to which I would go to for you? I've given you an example now. By the way, that example would be made even more manifest in the cross. 
So how was love demonstrated? Look at 1 John 3, 16 through 18 on the screen behind me. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods, you say, what does this look like practically? Look, look, at, look how practical John gets here. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let us be willing to show our love in action. John Calvin states in regards to faith and love, he says, observe here that under, uh, that under faith and love, Paul sums up the whole perfection of Christians. When faith and love are paired together in a church, we have something for which to thank God. And I can tell you right now, I am incredibly thankful for how God has made this evident in our church. Now, Paul expresses his love for them, but I want you to see in verse 16, Paul kind of transitions to, from a focus on them, and we get a little bit of a glimpse into Paul, and thereby, again, allowing a bit of a paradigm for us to assess our own Christian lives. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I wonder this morning, am I known not only, listen, for my unashamedly visible faith and my selflessly sacrificial love, am I known for my unceasingly grateful praise? Paul is a constant example of this to us. A heart of gratitude. Did you notice that? A heart of gratitude, that, that word thankfulness or thanksgiving, listen, it's not just a day we celebrate. It is to be a characteristic of who we are. How fitting on a day that we celebrate thanksgiving that we think about how this needs to be a constant aspect of our Christian lives. Those who are truly thankful, and notice, we're not primarily thankful to others, we're thankful to the Lord for others. You see the difference there? See what Paul recognizes? That everything that has happened in these believers' lives, their faith and their love, this is all a result of God's doing. Can you see that there? It's God's doing. And so he doesn't say, hey, I'm so thankful for how you love each other and for the faith that you've expressed. He says, I thank God that this is who you are because he knows that all of this is simply another gift of God's grace. He turns his praise back to the one to whom it is due, and his praise is filled with gratitude. I, I think we need to embrace and embody this in our praise. You know, all of our praise is an overflow. We've been looking at this in the past few weeks. An overflow of gratitude as we reflect upon the realities of who God is and what he has done for us in salvation. It is the outworking of our praise, or excuse me, of our gratitude. I want you to note as well that this is a mark of maturity. It's not just a mark of, of a Christian. It is a mark of Christian maturity. You see, because this is a common characteristic of the Apostle Paul. Every letter he writes, he begins usually with a prayer of thanksgiving for the believers that God has saved and is working in. And I just want you to know that I think Paul is probably one of the most mature Christians to ever walk the face of the earth. And I find it interesting that the longer he walks with the Lord, the more thankful he becomes. And sadly, isn't this sad? Because this is often not a reality of those who walk with the Lord here and now. The longer they walk with the Lord, the more critical and grumpy they often become. And Paul is the exact opposite, and he sets for us an incredible example and model. I want you to know, too, that he rejoices in hearing of the progress of others. 
Now, oftentimes, when we hear about somebody who's done really well, what's our natural inclination? Oh, yay. (laughs) I'm so happy for you. You see, oftentimes, our heart moves towards resentment, and we become critical. So how does that happen? Well, it happens because we're not focused on caring for the individual. We're not focused on really loving them. We're focused on ourselves. We're not focused on what they have. We're focused on what we're not getting. We can't be excited for what God is doing in their lives because oftentimes we look internally and we see that that's not what he's doing in our lives. And if that's our natural reaction, then that simply needs to tell us that that's not God's fault, it's our fault. Paul is always so horizontally focused, listen, because he is primarily vertically focused. That there is a direct correlation for how you can be thankful for what God is doing in other people's lives. And it happens when we are predominantly vertically focused, when our eyes are fixed upon God, when we long for God to be glorified and exalted. Remember that the praise of his glory, that refrain that Paul repeated three times over in the previous section, he is so enamored with the glory of God. He is so fixated on everything bringing glory to God. When he hears then about how God is blessing and moving and changing and growing and progressing in others' lives, his heart bursts out in praise, and he can't help but be thankful. He's in no way resentful. He is in no way critical. Grateful praise is characteristic of Christian spiritual maturity. Finally, we can learn from Paul, I wonder if this characterizes your life, in my humbly, in my humbly dependent prayer. Am I known for my humbly dependent prayer? It's hard enough sometimes to be known as a person who's filled with grateful praise. I wonder if you're known for your humility and especially expressed through the dependent prayer. Paul launches into this prayer. You'll notice that that is the purpose. He's setting up for a prayer for them, remembering you in my prayers. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Paul is so vertically focused, so God-focused, and so others-focused that he cannot help merge the two in prayer wherever he can. I just, I find this so instructive that Paul sees what God is doing, the good that God is doing, and he longs for God to do more. You know, oftentimes we go to God in prayer and and in dependent prayer in particular, less when things are good, more when things are hard. Isn't that true? We become really dependent people when we become very desperate people. When everything's falling apart, when we're experiencing pain or suffering or, or circumstantial tragedy, It draws us near to God, and it should, by the way. I I don't want to minimize that. That, That's one of the ways God draws us close. But I love the example that Paul sets. Paul is not just content to draw near to God when things are hard. He draws near to God when things are good. He realizes this is God's doing, and his heart is, God, I, I don't want you to stop. I want you to keep doing more. So don't just pray that the bad would change in your prayer life. Pray that the good would grow. Paul sees that God has done all of this by his grace, and he knows that God can do so much more. So one of the lessons that God has been teaching me, especially this week, is that when things are good, don't stop praying. Keep ramping it up. More humble dependence. That happens when you see that all the good in your life is a result of God's grace. And so you simply want to experience more of the grace that he's lavished upon you. And you will, by the way, you will do this when you understand this second point here. Knowing God changes what I know. It doesn't just change what I'm known for, it actually changes what I know, and I want to dive deep into this 
section here, Paul now launches into his prayer in verse 18, and he's going to go all the way to the end of the chapter into verse 23, but we're going to break this up for the sake of time. There's so much in here that we need to look at. See, Paul begins here in verse 17 to petition God, and he does so. Look at verse 17 with me. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, Paul makes this astounding statement about the God that he is praying to. He links, by the way, in this one statement, God and Christ together, and he reminds us that everything we have and everything we need comes from the Father through our relationship with Jesus Christ. I want you to see, too, we're going to see this very clearly in this text, I believe, just like we saw in the previous section, Paul is deeply Trinitarian in his theology. Paul thinks through the grid of the Trinity. He sees everything that is happening in the Christian life through the working of the Trinity. It is the plan of God that is accomplished by the work of the Son through the power of the Holy Spirit. All of this Paul ties together, and it's a reminder, listen, in the new Christian life, we need to be deeply Trinitarian in the way we think. He ties these things all together for us, and one of the things he makes very clear as he makes these statements is that we are praying to the God of all creation, he is the father of glory. That is who he is. And we come to this God through our relationship with Jesus Christ. We have access through Jesus Christ. And we grab hold of the throne of grace as Paul does here. And one of the things that we need to learn from this passage is that we don't need more than what we've been given in the Christian life. We need increased understanding and appropriation of what we've already been given. I think, again, it's just important to note that there are so many Christians who walk around praying for what they've already been given in Christ. We're constantly praying for things that God has already said, you have, you have, you have, no, you have that. Stop asking me for that. You just need to understand what's already been given to you and you need to take it and you need to access it in how you live your life. That's exactly what Paul wants to press into us. There is in the Christian life an entry-level knowledge and then there is an ongoing, increasing depth of knowledge in the things that have been given to us. That's where he begins. He begins with this concept of increased spiritual knowledge. Underneath this framework, I want you to see that first. This, by the way, is really the very essence and heart of Paul's prayer. Everything in this passage revolves around this concept of knowing God. That's why the outline is the way it is. That's why the title is the way it is. I want to make it abundantly clear. This is the heart of Paul for, his, for God's people. And there is language here that is woven into this section that highlights this ongoing or increased spiritual knowledge, peeling apart and getting to the depths of what God has already given to us. I, I want to highlight, too, that this is the very goal of Paul's life. Paul makes a statement in Philippians 3.10 that I think defines his entire existence. He says it like this, listen, 30 years after walking faithfully with Christ, this is the passion of his heart. He says, that I may know him. It's never done. It's never done. There's always more to be had. There's always more to know, to understand. And so in verse 17, Paul begins and he says that God may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. It is 
knowledge that is given from the Father through the Son by the Spirit. We saw last week, we talked a lot about the Holy Spirit who has sealed us, Paul says, who is our guarantee, Paul says. In verse 3, we looked a few weeks back at how He is our spiritual blessing that has been given to us by God. And now Paul, I believe, leans on that backdrop. He's already painted this beautiful picture of the Holy Spirit that indwells followers of Christ. And he says this, that this, that we may be given the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, there has been some debate, and some of your Bibles may translate this slightly differently. There's some debate over whose spirit this is referring to. So some translations um, say that God may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation. In other words, that's pointing potentially to the idea that our inner disposition, that God would grant to us an increased sense of discernment and, and that kind of inner knowledge and discernment and wisdom that we can possess. And the question that we need to ask is this, is, is Paul praying that God gives us greater human wisdom and revelation? Is that the essence of what Paul is asking for here? If so, then... That must come, by the way, from the Holy Spirit anyways, right? So I just want you to see that regardless of how you take this, if it's a spirit or the spirit, speaking of uh, the Holy Spirit, all of the wisdom and revelation we gain from God comes by means of the Holy Spirit. I do believe, however, it makes the most sense to view this as the Holy Spirit. In light of all that Paul has already said in this passage in, in Ephesians chapter 1 about the Holy Spirit. And I think that's heightened when we understand what wisdom and revelation are. You see, wisdom is the fullness of godly knowledge and understanding. Revelation has to do with the work of the Holy Spirit, revealing something hidden, a mystery of God that is, that is unveiled by God and cannot be discovered by human investigation. That is the very essence of what revelation is. And so it makes very little sense that God is simply asking that we would have that ability rather than allowing the Spirit to give to us what we are fully dependent upon the Spirit to give us anyways. Revelation is the imparting of knowledge, wisdom is the use of that knowledge. That's another way to think of this. But the whole point of this entire passage, I, I hope you see this, is the very reason that Paul prays for them in the first place is that we cannot know the things of God by our own wisdom and ingenuity, and we are wholly dependent upon the Spirit of God. So if that's true, if Paul is speaking of the Holy Spirit here, is Paul then praying that we would get the Holy Spirit? Why would he pray like this? Is he, is he suggesting that we need some kind of a second filling of the Holy Spirit or, or, a, or a baptism of the Spirit like some people believe? The simple answer to that is no. He's not praying for them to receive more, hear this, he's not praying for them to receive more or praying for us to receive more of the Holy Spirit. Uh, that should not be language in our vocabulary when we pray. We don't need more of the Holy Spirit. We have been given the deposit of the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. But what he is praying for is that we and them in particular would experience the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit in their lives. He'll say later in chapter 5 that we can actually quench the Spirit of God in our lives. There are things that we can do in the Christian life, our sin in particular, that is an obstacle to the Spirit having full rule and full control in our lives. And so what he is simply asking for here is that the ministry of the Holy Spirit would be the ongoing experience of our lives. And I want to parallel this with what we see in verse 18. Notice what he says. 
in many ways synonymous with this idea of, of growing in knowledge, increasing in knowledge. He says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. He's asking here for the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit, that God would grant to us spiritual insight. That, that is the increasing spiritual knowledge that Paul longs for us to have. I want you to consider what 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6 says. Paul writes these words, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Can you just, this is the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit. Whatever your theology of the Holy Spirit may be this morning, can you see that this is the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit? It is to bring your heart to a place of spiritual illumination that you might gaze upon the beauty of Jesus Christ and in so doing know that you are beholding the face of God himself. In the same way that God has ripped the veil off of your eyes and led you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, so too there needs to be this ongoing ministry of the Spirit that continues to lead us in the illumination of all that God is. Paul will say in Ephesians Chapter 4, verse 18, that they are darkened in their understanding, speaking of unbelievers, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of hearts. That's who we once were, but with conversion, a decisive transformation has occurred. We are enlightened by the Spirit of God, and now Paul prays that they must see with the eyes of their heart. I love that language. It's, it's in many ways just beautiful language. It is incredibly poetic. But it has incredibly deep meaning. You see, the heart in the context of the Old Testament was a very important concept. It is referred to as the seat of physical, spiritual, and the mental life of a person. I want you to think of the heart in the biblical context kind of like the mission control center of your life. It is the place where everything happens. Everything is bound up there. All of your thinking, all of your feelings, all of your emotions, all of your decision-making, everything happens in the heart. And for Mission Control Center to stay up and running the way it's supposed to, you need to be constantly accessing the power source of the Holy Spirit. And Paul is praying for a specific manifestation of the Spirit so that we will have insight and increased spiritual knowledge that can be unlocked only and understood only by the revelation of the Holy Spirit. You say, I need more evidence. Okay, I'll give some to you. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 10 and 11. He says this, these things, speaking to believers in Corinth, he says, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. He's talking about the gospel. He's talking about the depths and the riches and the wonders of the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen to this, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Stop there. Don't, don't change it yet. Just pause for a second, okay? Did you see what he's saying there? It is this, in, in the, the triune relationship of God, the Spirit of God has access to all of the inner thinking of God himself because he is God himself. And I just need you to know this. 
The same Spirit of God is placed in believers, okay? We keep coming back to this, and, and I just, again, we, we wash over this so quickly. We just kind of run past this so quickly. The Spirit who knows all things has been placed inside of us. Do you see the gift that you've been given through Jesus Christ? Now watch this in verse 16 of chapter 2. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? <laughs> but we have the mind of Christ. <laughs> Don't you, do you see the, the contrast he's making? Who can understand God? I mean, who can understand the depths of all that God is? And then he turns to believers and goes, oh yeah, you can because you have the spirit of God within you. It's just, it's so amazing. And Paul wants to highlight here that the ongoing work of the spirit of God is continually unlocking and revealing to us the depths and the wonders of all that God is. And the first request Paul makes is that believers would grow in their knowledge of, listen, him. That him is God. That is who Paul is praying to. But as we saw in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, listen, to know Christ is to know God. To behold Christ is to behold God, for he is the image of the invisible God, the exact imprint of his nature. Now, I just, I think it's helpful to dive a little bit deeper and explain to you this biblical picture of knowledge. And so I just got four quick little bullet points that I think will be helpful as we understand knowledge because in our especially Western mindset, we can confuse knowledge with simply one aspect of knowledge. And so I think there's four biblical aspects of knowledge that I want to place before you. The first one is this, that knowledge, biblically speaking, is informational. This is often where we stop. Uh, knowledge, biblically speaking, is informational. It, it, this is where biblical knowledge begins. It has to begin with content. It has to begin with truth. It has to begin with objective realities. And that's exactly what God gives to us in the word of truth. God gives us information about who he is, and we need to be committed to know the right information. But if we stop there, we miss the depth of knowledge that God is truly calling us to because the second aspect of knowledge is experiential. It's not just informational, it's experiential. The, the eyes of your heart language is intended to evoke in our hearts this picture of knowledge that impacts every fiber of our being. You get that? It impacts not only the way we think, it impacts the, the way we feel, it impacts the way we behave, the way we live our lives. This is intended to be experiential. And by the way, the word of God is intended to be like a two-edged sword, cutting deep into our hearts exposing, drawing out sin, applying the healing balm of the gospel of Jesus Christ, giving encouragement through grace. It is supposed to break us down and then it is supposed to build us up. Every one of us is called to have an actual experience with God through the truth of his word. It's supposed to intersect with our lives. But again, it's got to move from there, informational, yes, experiential, yes, but is leading more towards this aspect, relational. All knowledge, biblically speaking, is intended to be relational. We good? We don't know. All right, we're going to keep going. The word know in the Old Testament is often used in this context. Adam knew Eve, and Eve gave birth to a son. 
And that's just simply to say this. Listen, the whole point of knowledge in the Bible was to show a deep sense of intimacy. It is supposed to be relational at its very core, and the same is true in our relationship with God. God is not intent with us, uh, content with us just knowing facts about Him. He's not content with us simply having an experience of conviction that the Word of God produces. He wants it to move us to a place of relational change. He wants us to see Him differently, to understand who we are in light of Him and His grace and His forgiveness through the cross. It is about intimacy. It is about love. It is about changing the affections of our hearts. It is not, you need to hear, we need to hear this constantly in a place, listen, we love the truth of God's word, amen? We are a church that preaches God's word. We build our church on the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the word of God. It is our first pillar in this church. We are unashamedly about the preaching of God's word, but one of the greatest dangers in churches that love the truth, listen, is they become only about truth. They become Bible fatheads, God longs for so much more than that from us. He's not as interested in us simply knowing facts about him. He wants us to know him personally and intimately. And here's why, because knowledge at the end of the day is intended by God to be transformational. It's been said that you become what you behold. The very purpose of truth and beholding, listen, this is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we behold the glory of Jesus Christ and then we are transformed from one degree of glory to the next. You see, it is by beholding him through his word that we become like him. This is the point. God is wanting to transform us more and more to the image of our Savior. God is wanting to transform us more and more into aliens and strangers of this world to be living like that and to be living like heaven is our home. Now, it's likely, when you think of these different categories, it's likely that you tend to excel in one or more of these areas but are deficient in maybe one or more. I just want to highlight that every single one of these needs to be an important aspect of the knowledge that you are attaining in God. This here is really the paradigm through which true biblical knowledge is actually attained by the power of the Holy Spirit. We, we must view this as a funnel, by the way. We got them all up there. I, I want you to see the, this as a funnel from information all the way down to transformation. You see, this is the process whereby God is squeezing us through the funnel and making us more like Jesus Christ. You need to see this. You need to pray for this every day. This must be your pursuit. Every time you open up God's word, our knowledge is not attained by study alone, but by a prayer-soaked, spirit-dependent, God-seeking, life-transforming pursuit. That is what we must be after. Specifically, Paul asks that we would have knowledge in certain areas. So that's a long, hopefully thorough understanding in some senses of biblical knowledge, and it's, it's intended, listen, to push us. Paul is going to now pray specifically that we would grow in knowledge in three particular areas. And if you look from verses 17 kind of halfway through, all the way to 19, Paul, there's this phrase that Paul says three times. Let's look at it. Let me highlight it for you as I read it again. That the, glory, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. Here it is. That you may know what is the hope 
to which he has called you? What are or what is the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And listen to it again. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? What is, what is, what is, Paul says that you ought to know what is. And so the first thing he says is this, is that we need to be, have an increased spiritual confidence. And this is what God wants us to know. And he says this statement that in verse 17, sorry, verse 18, halfway through, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. The idea of hope there being this expectation or a trust in God that characterizes the patient waiting for God's outworking of his plan. Our ultimate hope is to be with the Lord, Paul says over and over again in the Scriptures. It's, it's a hope that is grounded, by the way, in past experience of God's past faithfulness. There, there is a subjective sense to this hope. Paul is looking across at the church and he's saying, you know what you need? You need to know experientially, constantly, subjectively the hope that is yours in Christ because of your relationship with God. And you can't have that unless you truly know Him. How fitting, I, I think we look around in this world and, and there are so many people who are living without hope. Stories in the news of those who are hopeless. Tragic events that demonstrate a hopelessness and provoke in others a sense of hopelessness. But Paul looks at believers and he says, you are those who are not without hope. You are to be those who are filled with an increased spiritual confidence all because of the hope that you have. And all you have to do to access this hope is to keep looking back in one sense, to keep being reminded of, of who God is and what he has done in the past because it is your past experience of what God has done that will influence the future and the present hope that you can now live in. It's a hope that's grounded in the past redemption of our souls. I just want you to consider this for a minute. What Paul is pointing to is a future day. Listen, we're there. Our hope will be completed, where we will be with the Lord, where we will be like him. I love that picture. When he returns, we will be transfixed on Jesus' face. In that moment, listen, we will be made like him. But we can have that hope because we know what he's done for us at the cross. Amen? We know that he's taken care of our sin. We know that he's paid the price in full. He, he shed the blood of his own son. He didn't spare anything. He absorbed all the wrath on himself. So listen, our future is set. It is secure. And we can walk in confidence that one day everything will be made right, not only with the universe, but with us and God. I want to illustrate this just to help you. you know, I think this concept of hope sometimes is lost on us. You know, we have oftentimes a faulty understanding of hope. See, if I was driving downtown of Toronto between the hours of 7 to 9 on a weekday, it would be unrealistic for me uh, to hope or to say to you, if I came to you and said, you know what, I'm getting ready to leave for, for work, you've got to go downtown, I'm going to jump on the DVP, I really hope there's no traffic. That's not hope, that's foolishness, Right? Because we know, we can look at the track record, we can see the pattern, and we understand that that is not just foolishness, it's wishful thinking, it's not going to happen, knowing that something won't happen, but thinking it might. 
But you see, our hope in the Christian life is just the opposite of that. I lived in California for three years. And this is going to make a lot of you really jealous, but I woke up every day. And, and imagine if I woke up and said, you know, I really hope it's going to be sunny today. It's sunny every day, like 99% of the time. It is sunny and hot in California, right? Like, what am I doing here? I know. You see, that's not a hope that is unfounded. That is a hope that is anchored in past experience. 99% of the time is basically a surefire thing, but when it comes to God, there is a 100% track record with him. You know that? In the past, there was a 100% track record of doing what he promised to do. He's been faithful in the past. He'll be faithful in the future. He's always done what he's promised. He's not about to stop now. The hope of our calling is settled, and that produces within our hearts, or it should, a settled confidence. You say, why does Paul pray for this? Why does Paul think believers need to grow in this and to experience greater hope as they live their lives? Here's why. Because anxiety and worry are not just a modern-day problem. Jesus spoke of anxiety and worry. Remember that in Matthew chapter 6? This is a common problem that people live their lives constantly worried about everything that's going on around them, living with eyes fixated on their circumstances, unsure, unsettled, unstable. This is a sinful human problem that is rooted in the fall. Now, to be sure, there is an epidemic in our culture of anxiety and fear and worry And I think even in the church of Jesus Christ, there is an epidemic of worry and fear. And what Paul is saying to the church is this this should not be. There are far too many who have trusted in Christ for their past salvation, but are not trusting in Christ for their present or their future salvation. We need constantly in this life, because it is hard, it is painful, there is suffering, there are trials, we need constantly a renewed sense of hope in this life, a reminder of how faithful God's been in the past that carries us through into the next life. I love what 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. This is our great hope that Paul draws our hearts towards. The second aspect of knowledge that Paul wants us to embrace is this. We need to increase spiritual joy. We need to increase spiritual joy. And God's here inheritance is discussed again. He says this. We need to know what is or what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. We saw last week that this is speaking of us as being God's inheritance. And while it's true, we have an inheritance waiting for us that is undefiled in heaven. I hope you can just stretch back to last week and see that this is speaking of God's possession of us. We are His treasured inheritance. And you see that very clearly in verse 18, don't you? Excuse me, verse, uh, you have end of verse 18 there. The riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. We are His treasured possession, and the beauty of being God's inheritance is that He becomes our inheritance, that we will one day gaze upon His face. He will be the center of all of heaven and of all of eternity. He he will be what our heart loves and cherishes and adores more than anything else. God has purchased us because He loves us and He values us, and He longs to be with us. He is uh, the source of, of ultimate joy in our lives and for all those 
who he has created. His presence is what we were made to experience and to know. And one day, as we have looked at in the past few weeks, his presence will one day be reunited with the earth. He will dwell amongst his people. He will be our God and we will be his people. And the thought of God longing to be with us in the future, the thought of us being his treasured possession and him longing to return, listen, to, to receive us back to himself. I really believe that this needs to create within us a longing to draw near to him now. Have you ever had a one-way friendship? You know, you constantly reach out, but uh, it's never reciprocated. You end up feeling used, you end up feeling unloved, unappreciated, disrespected, because it's not a true friendship, is it? It's not a right relationship. Look, if being with God in the future does not appeal to you, perhaps it's because of your refusal to be with Him in the present. I really believe a lot of Christians don't have their hearts set on being with God. You know, the, the thought of being in heaven is very little about God, and that's because they are very, very little with God in the here and now. But if you want to get excited about your future, if you want to get excited about meeting your Lord and Savior face to face, can I suggest to you that there needs to be a reciprocation in the relationship here and now? He longs to draw near and he does so as we come in humility through his designed means. If you aren't experiencing that kind of presence and joy in the Lord here and now, the good news for you is that you can be. You can draw near to him. The Bible calls you to. And in James, he says that we can come near in brokenness and humility. And God loves to bless the humble. He loves to draw near to the brokenhearted. Come through humility. Come through his designed means of prayer. Come through the designed means that God has given us of the word of God, of fellowship with believers. The more you love him now, the more you will long for him later. For so many of you in this place this morning, I wonder, can you hear God knocking on the door of your heart? It's like, hey, I want to keep working on this relationship. You know, can I just suggest that you open? Open the door and allow that relationship to grow and to flourish so that you can increase in your spiritual joy in him and being his treasured possession. And lastly, Paul says this, that we need increased spiritual power. These are the things that Paul longs for us to know. Increased spiritual power in our lives. And in verse 19, he just he lays out this phenomenally compact, power-packed, sentence. He said, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? He heaps one word on another to express the greatness of God's power that is available to the believer. This word immeasurable means to throw over or beyond a mark, to surpass expectations to exceed, to excel. You know, we use this phrase that, you know, uh, he, he, just, he doesn't realize his own power. He's done far more than he, he even understands he's capable of. 
The greatness that is spoken of there is speaking of the scope or the magnitude, the breadth, the height, the depth, the width, all of the, the greatness of God's power. The word power, and by the way, these are all different words Paul uses in the Greek. He literally exhausts the Greek language, finding every word for power that he can so we understand the magnitude of God's power toward us who believe. There is nothing, in other words, that he has not given to us in terms of power. That word power means strength and capability, authority. It's used in terms of military force, and it speaks of an endless ability to accomplish the unimaginable, humanly speaking. All of this endless, boundless, immeasurable power is directed, notice this phrase, towards us who believe. He's like, here, here's my power. How shameful that we try and do the Christian life in our own strength, amen? How silly, how foolish. And then quite literally here, in this next half of the sentence, Paul is saying, and he's going to show us, listen, that all that God has given us is according to the power of the power of his power. How's that? Let me say that again so you make sure you get all that. It's according to the power of the power of his power. You get it? He uses in the final phrase three words for power. The working, according to the working, he says. Working means to the sense of active energy versus potential energy. In the New Testament, it always refers to a supernatural power that is an actual operation. He's upholding the universe by the word of his power. Right now, ongoing, unending. Of his great, he says, this sense of great is this inherent strength as an attribute of God. In other words, it's who he is. He is great in power. He cannot not be great in power. It is who he is. It sums up who he is. And this last word, might, equals strength or victory as in war. It speaks to a victorious power, a power to overcome all other powers. It adds this Picture of unparalleled victory, absolute and unquestioned rule and authority, total dominion. They all relate and they all overlap, pointing to the inherent strength or power possessed, and it emphasizes the ability to overcome any and all resistance. You know, you can look at a bulldozer, and you can just see by looking at a bulldozer instantly that it has the ability and capacity and potential of just routing trees, destroying everything in its way. By looking at it, we sense its inherent strength, but when its engine roars to life, it begins to move. Its power becomes obvious. But when it begins to roll over everything in its path, we see the activity of its power. We see its power in action. And Paul is using every word possible to communicate the vastness and invincibility of the power that God has made available to all believers. Can you hear that? All believers. Do you see that in your life? That's a real question for you this morning. Do you see that kind of power being accessed in your life today? It is evident that the power of God's Spirit, this power, unmatched, unimaginable power, supernatural power is alive and at work in you. 
Is it seen in the increasing depths of knowledge of all that he is? Is it being seen in the confidence and the great hope that you are living in light of this very day? Is it seen in the joy of the Lord that is washing over your soul? Is it seen in the victory in your life, the victory over sin and temptation, the victory over everything that stands in the way of holiness before God? Do you see it? It's yours. It's fully available. All you need to do is take it by faith. Do you know him? That's what Paul wants to know. Do you know him? Our great God who has given us all things in Christ. Do you really know him? Father, we pray. We pray like Paul, Father, for a deeper knowledge of you. We pray, God, for an increased understanding of all that you are. We pray, Lord, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would bring, by the power of your Spirit, enlightenment and illumination, that, Father, we might behold the face of our God as we behold the face of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray, God, that as we gaze upon you, as, Lord, we dive deeper in our relationship with you, Lord, that first you would increase this desire, this longing to be in your presence, Father, to know you as Paul cried out in Philippians 3.10. Lord, may it be the longing of every heart here. May there be the sense, Lord, in every one of our hearts that there is nothing sweeter, there is nothing more satisfying than knowing you. Lord, for this is going to characterize our eternity. An eternity awaits us, Lord, of knowing you. And Father, it is eternity because knowing you is an inexhaustible pursuit. So Lord, we pray that you would stir our hearts with great affection. You are our great God. And Father, we pray in humble dependence upon your spirit, saying, God, would you take us? Would you change us? Would you make us more like our Savior, Jesus Christ? And may it begin, Lord, with knowing more of who you are. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.